Well, for the first time, 6,000 children taking part in the country's largest longitudinal study have been able to give their own thoughts and insights into their lives. This includes that a third had been bullied in the past year. The latest report from the University of Auckland's Growing Up in New Zealand study focuses on life for the children born between t- in 2009 and 2008. Now they've reached the age of eight. Many of the children reported a firm sense of cultural and gender identity, increasing freedom and high levels of participation in sports and music. The cohort at eight had moved around a lot. Three quarters had moved at least once, and almost half had moved two or more times since birth. Some issues of concern. 31% of the children were living in cold houses. 37% in housing with dampness or mould issues. 35% reported being bullied in the last year. 34% were either overweight or obese. Growing up in New Zealand, Principal Investigator Professor Susan Morton is with us to further unpick the results of the Now We Are Eight report. Susan, good morning. Morena, Catherine. Shall we start with a quick recap of what the Growing Up in New Zealand study is? Sure. So Growing Up in New Zealand is a contemporary longitudinal study, as you said. It's following the lives of over 6,000 children from their pregnancy, actually. It started by recruiting pregnant mums in 2009 and 2010. It also engaged with the dads of the children before they were born. And it's really been following those children since their birth to find out what is shaping their well-being and what creates a good environment for these children to grow up in today. And I guess the key thing about this study that that makes it unique in the New Zealand context is that the children in the study represent the diversity of our current births. So they are um, ethnically diverse and they are socioeconomically diverse so that we can actually use the results of this study to actually take to policy tables and say, this is the lived realities of our children. Yes, we're familiar with um, longer-running longitudinal studies, but as you say, they would have started at a point in time in our history, uh, and this has started uh, in a a very modern New Zealand with a very diverse population. That's exactly right. So this is the same sort of idea, but obviously New Zealand has changed dramatically since the 1970s, since the successful Dunedin and and Christchurch studies, which are still going in terms of following uh, well-being through into adult years. So we really, along with many policy agencies, wanted to see a study like this start again in the 21st century so that we could actually start to shape policies that were relevant to the context that these children are growing up in today and also to the new diversity that is our current population. How is the information collected? So in general, from the beginning, we have gone to the children's homes or the family home and actually conducted interviews face-to-face with mums, with dads separately, and now, of course, with the children themselves. So that's been really exciting. We measure the children, we engage directly with the children, we ask mums and dads about the children up until this point, and of course, most excitingly, at this point at eight, we've actually been able to ask the children directly about what they think about their lives and their well-being and what matters to them. What is significant about eight? What changes do we start to see in eight-year-olds that differentiate this part of the study from the ages you've already reported on? So I think the key thing here in middle childhood is that these children are now experiencing formal education for all but a small group of children who are homeschooled, for example, but still formal education. 
The things that set it apart for this group are that they are emerging, or they've got emerging identities. Their autonomy is emerging. They're starting to define who they are themselves. They're starting to understand their place in the world. And they're starting to be able to tell us who they think they are and how others see them and what their identities are, whether that's ethnicity or gender, or whether it's about how they engage with their world and with others around them. So this is an exciting time to actually get baseline measures of some of those sorts of identity measures, but also some of the well-being measures that we're interested in tracking through into adolescence when potentially we know that some of our uh, statistics for our population generally start to, to not do us any favours really in the international context. And we want to understand when those sort of issues with mental well-being, for example, set in so that we can understand what we might do to prevent some of those issues that are that are more downstream. So can you detail how they were able how you were able to learn these things, especially when you were getting into some of these more complex and subjective areas? How have you gone about uh, I guess hearing from them? So that, that's always a challenge for us because what we try and do is use tools, I guess, or, or um, sets of questions that have been used in other contexts and validated often overseas for populations of children. And we think about whether those are going to work in our New Zealand context and we actually trial those before we go out to the full 6,000 cohort. So we're actually asking about some of these well-being issues, particularly physical and mental well-being, using some clever tools, if you like, that have been set up um, sometimes for decades, sometimes uh, more recently than that, to actually elicit this information that is going to tell us how our generation of children are doing, and in particular how they compare to their peers who are the same age. And how that builds on the sort of information that we've had from the early years in terms of what has shaped that well-being. I mean, there are quite um, strict academic processes, aren't there? Statistical testing of the way questions are asked um, or the way information is processed that tries to ensure you're not leading the kids, for example. Absolutely. So we are trying to collect consistent information right across this diverse cohort. And you can imagine the challenges that that causes because these children are very different from each other. Um, but nevertheless, they are the same age. So we are using a lot of processes to ensure that we are acting in a way that is going to give us information from these children that really allows their voices and their views to be, he to be heard. And of course, we go through all of the ethical processes to ensure that what we are doing is as safe and secure for these children as it possibly can be, because that's incredibly important as well. So what did you hear from them? This all being, you know, established, what have you drawn from their replies? So I think the, the thing that stands out for us most of all, before we kind of get into what's gone wrong, is that for most children they are doing well, and that is a fantastic result. We're hearing children are happy, they're busy, they're leading, you know, fulfilling lives, their parents are happy with the way they're developing, and that's fantastic. But I think what is sad alongside that is that we have a group of children who are increasingly falling behind their peers. And that is something that we've watched over time develop. And it is, it is something that saddens us and something that we hope to use the information that comes directly from these children and their families to understand how we can do better. 
so in particular, we, we see, for example, that you know one in four of our children are experiencing persistent deprivation or poverty right throughout their early lives, and that unfortunately, by the time they are eight, we are starting to see that having an impact on their mental health. So if we measure their depression and anxiety scores, we see that they fall behind their peers in that regard. We also see in terms of some of their physical well-being that they are falling behind their peers. So if we think about something like overweight and obesity. We're seeing higher rates in those children who are exposed to persistent disadvantage. And so we really want to use this information as we have in the past to say, yes, we need to address this poverty, this disadvantage, but what we can we do alongside to actually try and support these families and the children in their wider environments? Because not all children who are exposed to those disadvantages will go on to have poorer outcomes. Some will actually do well and we can learn from their stories to actually shape support for those families and children while we address some of these wicked problems that we know affect our society. Susan, is this a representative um, sample of children aged eight or is it not that straightforward? So when we recruited the sample, it was, it was explicitly designed to represent the current diversity of births and young children. So we know in those first few years it absolutely was representative of the births. We track over time which children we're able to engage with. And we know that at eight, we had a few of the children that we actually just couldn't find. Um, so it, it, that uh, representativeness has gone down. A tiny bit, but it really is a tiny bit. We actually know that in general, the diversity of this cohort is representative of the diversity of our current children. And that's what makes this so important, because we can take those collective stories to policy tables and say, this is the lived reality of our children and families. This is what we need to think about when we're thinking about how to improve their well-being. Well, speaking of that, we've seen, uh, if we look more at the living situations of these children, let's go into a little bit more detail, but let's start with how often they move, Mm. and is there... Uh, quite a bit of mobility, and particularly for some children, a lot of mobility. Yes, and I think that that contributes actually to our ability to keep engaging with these families because the mobility has been immense. And and it's been very surprising. We were surprised in the preschool years at how often these children moved. But up to eight, actually only one in four of all of the cohort children have not moved at all. And for many of the children, around half of them, they've experienced two or more moves. Now, We could think about that as maybe a good thing because sometimes moving house can be moving to a more stable environment. For example, from a rental situation into home ownership, which creates more stability for children. But unfortunately, that's a rare sort of event. Mostly it is... Moves are the result of uh, children and their families needing to move from one rental property to another. And so that is that instability we know, a bit like deprivation, is also associated with poorer well-being by the time the children are eight. And there's probably lots of reasons for that, and, and some of those are because rental properties in generally in general tend to actually be less warm, have more dampness, um, they, they often don't have the safety features that some of homes that are owned have or even our public rentals have. So there are real issues in terms of supporting our children and families because of this 
instability in, in housing for the children and our ability to provide warm and uh, dry houses for, for young children and for their families. We had one in three living in homes with reported heating and warmth problems, 37% in homes with dampness and mould. We should point out, though, that this actually represented half of all the children living living in the highest deprivation areas, yeah? Absolutely, and this is where things cluster. It's not one thing or another that is leading to a particular outcome. It's this clustering of exposures to environments where choice is limited, where, where families who desperately want to provide the best for their children are constrained by the environments they find themselves in. And so that is the sorts of things that with this sort of information from a group of children and their families over time, we can actually pull together and start to look at the complexity of these environments and look at the layering of the types of solutions that might be required to actually improve well-being. It's unlikely that there is a silver bullet. It's more likely that there are going to be a number of things that we can do that will work together to better support these families and children. One other point while we stay in the area of deprivation, the mothers of nearly 40% of the children living in areas of high deprivation reported they could only sometimes or never afford to eat properly. Yeah, and that's that's a sad statistic as well. We we see in this cohort which again is representative of our, of our children today very high rates of this sort of food insecurity, this inability to do the sorts of things that parents know are good for their children's well-being and yet they're constrained by their income, by their situation, by the environments around them, by the supports that they can access and these things are limiting their children's um, opportunities and that is what we really want to use this information to address. How how can we improve the situation for these children so that the the sort of gaps that we're seeing widen in middle childhood don't continue to do so as they move through into adolescence and young adulthood? Just over half of the children lived in families with a total household income of over $100,000. Uh, one in 14 or 7% lived in a household of $30,000 or less. All right, let's look at... Um, some other matters than the overall health uh, of the children. We talked about obesity and again a link with poverty there. What was some of the other health information that you drew from this? Yeah, I guess just on the health one for a bit, I think that the obesity and overweight was was something that surprised us and, and it's worth sort of maybe just focusing on briefly because in the preschool period we saw that 14% of our children were classified as either overweight or obese and we were surprised that by eight we had you know more than one in three of our children so who over, were in that more category. Than doubled, more than doubled between what age and what age? Between four and a half and eight. Right. So, so that that is a concern. Now there are some things that we need to think about, some caveats in there. One of them is that we use an international classification, the World Health Organization classification, to rank our children according to uh, their BMI. And what we don't know so well for our New Zealand context is quite how those compare between the preschool and the middle childhood period. Nevertheless, we are seeing an increase in the proportion of our children who are ranked that way. And that is a concern because some of the evidence that is coming out from some of our cross-sectional studies would suggest that we don't need to worry because our four-and-a-half-year-olds rate or not worry so much because our four-and-a-half-year-old rates are maybe dropping slightly. 
But I think the thing that this study shows us is that when we track the same children over time, we're actually seeing an increase in these rates. Well, also, it's a short, relatively short period of time, not for the children, of course. It's nearly half their lives. <laughs> um, but it suggests it might be an age where you really want to look at what's going on, potentially. We know that uh, from our own New Zealand research, um, often uh, issues can can begin right from right from pregnancy, um, and, and mum's diet is very important. But if you look at other factors that might come to into play, some of the environmental factors, this looks like it might be an age to look closely at. Absolutely, because I think this age, you know, we, we don't want to see this this get worse. We really want to understand what is working. And again, unfortunately, we see higher rates in those children who have been exposed to more residential instability and to more poverty through their early life. So there's definitely some things that we need to look at that are not just about the children's body size, but actually about the environments they're experiencing on a day-to-day basis. What did they tell you about their information intake, screen time, you know what 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 they were absorbing Sure. So, and of course, these things are all related to body size. So, screen time is one of the things that obviously we're very interested with this cohort. They're digital natives. They're engaging with screens so much more than any generation before them. They probably need to do that in terms of their futures. But what we did see at eight is that they're engaging with screens about twice as often on average as they were in that preschool period. So, around about three hours or so outside of school each day. And that is something that we can justify, I suppose, in terms of them needing to engage with that for schoolwork. But in terms of balancing that out for families with uh, physical activity, with good nutrition, with good sleep and routines, that is what we seem to want to be able to tell families and parents that actually they can mitigate some of the impact of the hours of screen time by balancing those things out, by having rules around screen time, by actually looking at the content of what their children are engaging with and by supporting their children as they learn to engage with screens safely. What else of the social and mental well-being? I think some of the things that that we've been able to ask at this particular age is not only how the children see themselves, but how they feel about that. So, for example, if we look at that overweight and obesity, we've been able to ask them about their body image, how how they feel about how others see them and how they see themselves. And and while about 50% overall in the cohort are generally happy with themselves in terms of their body size and how they, how they view themselves, for those in the obese or overweight classification or that category, around two-thirds of them already understand that they are not feeling so good about themselves. They want to be smaller. Now, that is going to have an impact on their identity and is going to have an impact on their well-being. So that sort of psychological impact is something that is is going to have multiple different um, sequelae, really. They were asked about their culture and also about their gender identity, They were, and I think that's been really exciting. So the first thing to say is that we've always asked their parents about uh, what 
ethnicity, for example, they expected their children to be. And that was how we started the study. Um, and we deliberately wanted to capture the diversity of our current generation of children. At eight, we've asked the children themselves about which ethnic group they identify with. And most children were able to tell us uh, which group that was. Around about 14% didn't think about it. So they, they were often not able to tell us. But for most of them, they were able to identify with, with a particular ethnicity. Um, not always the same as their parents told us, but again, it becomes that sort of baseline for understanding how ethnic identity in this case evolves over time. Because I guess one of the other things that's important about this study is we don't want to use, use ethnic identity or ethnic group as an explanatory variable. We want to understand why we see children who identify as Māori or Pacific or Asian, for example, doing differently than their peers, rather than just because they have identified with a particular group. What are the things that that actually goes alongside? What are the things that that does in terms of well-being, in terms of cultural identity and so on? What did you ask them about gender and how? So we asked them for the first time at eight, again because of this emerging identity, about how they felt about themselves. So we had a series of pictures, again a standard tool that sort of showed pictures of uh, girls and boys and, and we just sort of asked them to identify where they felt they, they fitted on a spectrum between being you know, absolutely a girl, absolutely a boy or somewhere in the middle. And so they were able to do that themselves. And again, most of them, chose the gender that I, that was the same as they were at birth. But around 2% already at 8 were identifying as the opposite gender. And around 14% again were somewhere in the middle. So that sort of diversity of identity is starting in middle childhood. It's starting early. And we expect that that identity in terms of gender as well will actually evolve through the next few years. So we're really excited to see this from the children themselves telling us how they felt, and also how others saw them. When you look at this overall, the standout listening to you seems to be, there's a lot of good news in this study, but where there is um, disadvantage, there can be a series of complex um, and potentially interrelated problems in, in children's lives. I think that is the case. I think there is good news here to say that in general our children are flourishing and doing well. Eighty percent enjoying which, school. Which is, That's yeah, which is which is fantastic, right? But I mean, they are eight, so you know, there's plenty of time yet. But uh, but I think you know it, it's not good enough that we still see you know twenty eight percent who are in persistent deprivation in terms of the area level, ten percent who are experiencing real hardship, the twenty percent whose families can't provide the sort of nutrition that they would like to for their families and just the high level of mobility between homes that are either um, you know damp or, or cold and so there's still work to do. I think what it tells us is that there are some things that are going well but we really do want to pay attention to that group of children who are really falling behind at this stage because actually now is the time to really try and make sure that they have the best opportunities to do well as they move into adolescence. It's fascinating stuff Susan, I'm sure it'll get put to good use. Thanks very much. Growing up in New Zealand Principal Investigator Professor Susan Morton. The results from the Now We Are Eight report which includes the children's voices themselves for the first time.